Recovery Elevator, episode 44. It was this allergy in my body. If I had a taste of alcohol, I would have to finish drinking. And the only thing that would stop me would be passing out or running out of alcohol. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year, three months, and six days. On today's podcast, we've got Autumn. She's born in 1982, side note, which is a great vintage year, myself, 1982, and Autumn has been sober for nearly three years. She's been sober since January 26th, 2013. I really wanted to get Autumn on the podcast. I was forwarded an article that was done on Autumn about students in recovery at Montana State University. Now, I know firsthand that coming out in the public is gutsy. In fact, it's terrifying to say the least. So when I read this story about Autumn, who's in college, being the face of recovery in her university, I was like, man, I got to get this girl on the podcast because she is doing some awesome things. The topic of today's podcast, Recovery Elevator episode 44, is, is alcoholism or your drinking problem a disability? Now, it's very important while listening to this podcast episode to listen to these similarities and not the differences. If you're a female out there listening right now, you're going to say, oh, this is about a football coach. I don't like football. And that's somewhat of a sexist comment. I apologize for that. There's a girl named Mickey who I get a lot of fantasy football advice from. So thank you, Mickey, for that. But seriously, even if you've never touched a football, it doesn't matter. There's still a lot of takeaways. Focus on the similarities and not the differences. Oh, side note, that reminded me. I got to throw this in real quick. I heard this a couple days ago at a meeting. It was amazing. You've always heard, take the cotton balls out of your ears and put them in your mouth. The amendment to that saying is, take one cotton ball out of your ear. Leave the other one in so not everything goes in one ear and out the other. My brother forwarded me this article from the Los Angeles Time about Steve Sarkeesian. He's a recent USC head football coach who was dismissed due to really not doing his job because he's an alcoholic. I haven't read anywhere in an article saying that he's an alcoholic, but from everything that I've read, I'm going to go ahead and throw my unprofessional two cents in there and say, Steve, you're probably an alcoholic. I'm going to give a quick recap of the article and then give my quick two cents. So here goes. Basically, the gist of it is former UFC head football coach Steve Sarkeesian is suing University of Southern California, claiming that athletic director Pat Hayden fired him in October instead of allowing him to seek treatment for his alcoholism. Well, I guess right there, alcoholism, you got to be an alcoholic first to have this so-called alcoholism thing. So yeah, Steve, you're an alcoholic, which you probably already know. The lawsuit basically says instead of accommodating Steve Sarkeesian's disability, USC just kicked him to the curb. The 31-page complaint filed in the Los Angeles County Superior Court alleges breach of contract, discrimination on the base of disability, and invasion of privacy. It also provides Steve Sarkeesian's first public account of the events that led to his ouster after less than two years at the helm of the University of Southern California's football team. In the lawsuits, it says the stress of his job, coupled with the recent divorce of his wife, furthered his alcohol dependency. Those events are unfortunate, but I'm going to go ahead and put those events under the life category of things that just happen in life. So this issue really came into public view. In fact, the precursor to the whole debacle happened at a booster event where Steve Sarkeesian got on stage, was slurring his words, and threw out some profanity. Steve did mention that before the booster event, he had consumed two light beers along with prescription meds for anxiety. Those would probably be benzodiazepines. 
Now, I do not have access to his medical charts, but I'm guessing that's something like Xanax or Valium or Alprazolam. Basically, alcohol on a pill. So, those two beers coupled with maybe another 15 beers inside of a pill format, depending on the dosage or how many of these benzodiazepines that he took. Again, I don't know they're benzodiazepines, but I'm guessing dollars to donuts at what it was. He could have gotten up there at the press conference or the booster event and been pretty damn loaded. Immediately following the raising of that red flag on the stage, USC Athletic Director Pat Hayden met with Steve privately saying, man, I can fire you on the spot. What are you doing? What's going on? Now, this is your fearless warrior, the leader of 100 and so men ages 18 to 24. The guy who's getting paid millions of dollars is on stage drunk with a combination of alcohol and pills yelling curse words. As my freshman year literature teacher would say, Mr. Letcher, in a novel, this would be called the foreshadowing part of what is to ensue come the regular season. Okay, back to the article. In the aftermath, the lawsuit said Hayden required Steve Sarkeesian to sign a letter agreeing to apologize for his behavior and to meet weekly with a therapist at USC. In a written statement, USC General Counsel Carol Mach Amir assailed the lawsuit and said the school will vigorously defend itself. Much of what is stated in the lawsuit is patently untrue, the statement said. The record will show that Mr. Sarkeesian repeatedly denied to university officials that he had a problem with alcohol, never asked for time off to get help, and resisted university efforts to provide him with help. Side note, Steve, I completely understand repeatedly denying the offers for help because I personally have done that about 484 times. All right, back to the article. The lawsuit said Sarkeesian had no alcohol-related issues following the salute to Troy. That would be the booster event. And pointedly denied that the coach was intoxicated or shit-faced during a September 26th game against Arizona State. However, the plot thickens. The lawsuit said after a loss to University of Washington, where Coach Sarkeesian had coached for five years prior to coming to USC, the Trojans lost that game 17-12 on October 8th, the coach's depression and anxiety worsened, and his alcohol consumption outside of work increased. This is another event in life that I'm going to categorize under the life category. There are wins and losses in life. I'm not downplaying the scope and competitiveness of Pac-12 football, but this is just another loss in life. The combination of those events led Mr. Sarkeesian to not appear normal, the lawsuit says. Right around the time of the loss to University of Washington, Steve also realized he needed help and left USC on his own volition to seek help. The lawsuit says that Sarkeesian was upset, teary, and nearly hyperventilating before finally calling Pat Hayden on the speakerphone to ask for time off. Steve? I got to give you kudos. That had to have been a very difficult call to make. I personally remember being teary, upset, and nearly hyperventilating when calling my parents and telling them that I had a problem with drinking. And a job that paid millions of dollars a year wasn't on the line. So Steve, I fully understand that was probably one of the most difficult calls you've ever had to make in your entire life. Good job. All right, back to the article. According to the lawsuit, Hayden's response on the phone was, Unbelievable, Steve. Can't you even go back to your office and finish the day? Steve's response was, No, I need to get help. I'm not right. Athletic director Pat Hayden then directed Sarkeesian to speak with USC sports psychologist who previously counseled the coach and placed Steve on leave. The next day, Sarkeesian took a noon flight to an inpatient treatment facility. When he landed, the lawsuit said, he learned that Hayden had fired him when the coach saw a letter of termination attached to an email. Not once did Pat Hayden ask Steve Sarkeesian what happened at the team meeting, nor even whether he had been drinking shortly before the meeting, the lawsuit said. 
The lawsuit states that Sarkeesian is owed at least $12.6 million under his contract with USC, in addition to other damages. Disability law is a complicated area, and it often doesn't have easy, predictable outcomes, especially in the context with drugs and alcohol, said Michael McCann, a sports law professor at the University of New Hampshire. A key issue will be whether Sarkeesian was actively abusing alcohol while on the job. And if you are an alcoholic in a stressful job like that, I'm guessing he was. Side note, sorry. Back to the article. The lawsuit states that Sarkeesian has completed intensive treatment, the complaint said, is sober and ready to return to coaching. Coach Sarkeesian at this point has lost his team. He's lost his income, lost the job that he loved, said Alan Lewisholm, who's Steve Sarkeesian's Dallas-based attorney. USC left him no choice but to bring that to light and seek the justice that law affords. So that is the article. The question here is not to debate whether alcoholism is a disease, which we know. In 1956, the American Medical Association classified alcoholism as a disease. That's not a debate. The article doesn't bring that into debate or question. What's at the question here is, is alcoholism a disability? According to Steve Sarkeesian's lawsuit, it is under California state law. I am in no way qualified to go into the intricacies or the details if alcoholism really is a disability. But in my opinion, alcoholism is a disability and it isn't a disability. Well, Paul, thanks for your definitive answer there. But being a person who is an alcoholic, I can totally see both sides of the story. And this is a nebulous issue with a lot of gray area there. Alcoholism is a disease. A lot of diseases do lead to disabilities. Some of them are physical disabilities. Now, what about mental disabilities? There are plenty of people out there with mental disabilities who are currently receiving compensation from the government because they have a mental disability. These could be cognitive learning behaviors. This could possibly be schizophrenia and so much more. Alcoholism, it's a physical disease, true, that can often lead to physical disabilities such as malnutrition. But more importantly, we've learned that alcoholism is a three-part disease. So 33% or one-third is the physical component. The other two-thirds is going to be the mental and the spiritual component. At this moment, I can see both sides of the argument. Alcoholism is totally a disability. On the other side, I don't like the fact that it's a disability. I'm an alcoholic. It's a disease, sure, but there's a good solution. It's not an easy solution, but there is a solution. It's sobriety. Sobriety. Repeat that again. Sobriety. Not just dry drunk. There's about 455,000 other side notes, subchapters, appendixes, part of what sobriety really means. But there's a solution to this, and it doesn't have to be a disability. That's what I'm getting at. It doesn't have to be a disability that can't be cured. So Steve Sarkeesian, I got to say kudos to you. You reached out for help. Good job. I can only imagine how difficult of a situation that was. In fact, when I read the article, I was cringing because I could only imagine being in your shoes while being an alcoholic and dealing with those feelings of guilt, shame, and emotion. Oh, yeah, the stigma of being an alcoholic in such a high-profile job. So, Steve, here's a challenge to you. You are in the position to lead. You're no stranger to being a leader. Do us a favor and shed light on what it's like being an alcoholic. What is it like resorting to alcohol after a crushing loss to your alma mater, the Washington Huskies? After this lawsuit, depending on which way it goes, Steve, finding future employment may be a little bit more difficult. However, I still think you can be a fantastic football coach. And another arrow in your quiver is the alcoholism thing. 
you're like, wait a second, Paul, you're putting alcoholism on the pro category instead of the con category. I'm not really sure how a future employer will see that. Well, here's how. You got knocked down, Steve. Are you going to get back up? The lawsuit says you are getting back up. You're fighting back. However, I think a more effective approach to fighting back would be when you do secure future employment, which I hope you do get a second chance at. The opportunity you have to educate these young 18 to 24-year-old football players about alcohol and addiction. I remember when I played college football, when we would close the practices up, I heard the head coach say something like, yeah, that drugs and alcohol shit, just, just stay away from it. And that was really all that was covered on that topic by the head coach, our leader. Little did Coach Visser know at Chapman University that Thursday night, or pretty much every Thursday night during the season, I was on my way home to host a beer pong tournament at my house that usually had more than 15 teams. It was awesome. It was a hell of a lot of fun. But you can see that wanting to party your ass off till 2 a.m. on a Thursday night when you got a game on Saturday does not coalesce with being a good football player. So Steve Sarkeesian, that's the arrow in your quiver. Every single one of those college students, they're going to go to parties, fraternity parties. Your football players will face these dilemmas. They're going to say, well, Coach Steve went through this. I can go talk to him. But Steve, you got knocked down. You got to get back up. And it looks like you and your lawyer are trying to figure out a way to do that. All right. We have reached the time to hear from our interviewee, Autumn. But before we do that, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Autumn, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Autumn, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I've been sober since January 26th of 2013. We are coming up on almost three years, right? Yes, it is. Boom. Good job. And Autumn, give listeners a little bit of background about yourself. Maybe where you're from, how old you are, what you do for your living. What do you like to do for fun? Do you have a family? Sure. I'm 33 years old. I was born in Montana, but I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and I spent most of my life there. I'm currently a psychology student, and I have two little boys. Yeah, that sounds like you have a lot on your plate that maybe almost three years ago would have been very difficult, near impossible to manage. Am I correct? The way I was living my life, yeah, it was, for yeah. sure. And let's get into that. I am so curious to hear about your story, Autumn. Let's talk about the podcast title. Tell me about your elevator. When did you decide to get off? Well, I think there were several points in my drinking when I sort of recognized what was happening to me. I could not deal with life, and I didn't have any coping skills, so I always turned to alcohol and drugs to sort of blot out the pain that I was experiencing or uh, just deal with anything in general. I had a five-month-old baby, and I had woken up in the morning to him crying, and I was covered in my own vomit. And that was the last time that I woke up hungover. So uh, that experience was shocking, I guess, because here I was supposed to be taking care of someone who was totally helpless, and um, I could not even take care of myself. So at that point, 
in time is when I decided I needed to ask for help. Now, before that, can you describe maybe your drinking habits? Did you ever maybe try to control your drinking before asking for help? Oh, absolutely. And uh, the months leading up to that experience, I would sort of white knuckle it and have, I, I could put together a little bit of time, but there was always sort of this persistent, it was like a persistent voice in my head that I was going to drink again. And I would sort of plan out how I could possibly get away with it. So I would put together a little bit of sort of dry sobriety, but it wasn't healthy because I wasn't treating the alcoholism. And describe that alcoholism. I've already written down something that you said earlier, and you said blot out the pain. Is that the alcoholism you're talking about? And, and Mary, where do you think that pain came from? Well, for me, there's not one thing that I can sort of point at to say this is what caused the pain. I think that I was born with this emptiness, which is what I consider to be like a spiritual condition. And there were different aspects of my life that sort of contributed to making it a little bit worse. Like my mother was an alcoholic and she left when I was very, very young. Mm -hmm. And that experience, it sort of made me feel unlovable. And so this emptiness that maybe I was born with was, it was elevated and I felt unlovable and I felt incredibly lonely my whole life. And so when I started coping with things that are hard in life, like the death of my father when I was 20. Hmm. I just didn't have any skills to deal with that. And I filled the emptiness with alcohol and drugs. It was the only thing I knew how to do. And I don't even know if I had a whole lot of choice in the matter. I feel like I was sort of compelled to do it. Compelled to do, to do what? To blot out the pain? Right. To blot out the pain with substances. Gotcha, gotcha. And, yeah, I just, I, it felt almost like, I really felt like I didn't have a choice. Like that was the only solution I had. Autumn, talk to me about your drinking habits a little bit. How much did you drink? Was it just alcohol? And tell me about how you would white knuckle it. <laughs> well, when I drank, if I picked up one drink, it was all over with. I could not stop at one. It was this allergy in my body. If I had a taste of alcohol, I would have to finish drinking and the only thing that would stop me would be passing out or running out of alcohol. Mm -hmm. So that is how I drank. When I was untreated in my alcoholism, I would not pick up that first drink, but I would obsess about alcohol. If I was around alcohol, I would I would have to avert my eyes and not look at it because it had so much power over me. Autumn, this interview could go several different ways already. I've already scribbled down a lot of notes on my notepad. And this right here has already caused a light bulb in my head to go off. I've never heard of the term spiritual condition. Maybe I have, but I was trying to listen to the differences and not the similarities. Tell me more about the spiritual condition. Well, for me, what it is, if I don't treat this spiritual condition, I feel empty and I feel maybe some self-loathing and I feel like I have no purpose. But when I try to achieve this spirituality that the past three years of my life, that's what I've been trying to do, I can feel okay with who I am. I feel like there is a purpose 
to my life and I can love myself. Did you make this progression that I think I might sim- I might be on the same progression, but I think you're a year ahead of me on this. So I knew for a long time that I had the physical allergy, just like you said. When I start drinking, it's not over until there's not a drop of alcohol left in the room. But when I first quit drinking, I thought that's all it was, was this physical allergy. But right now, well, not right now, about a year ago, when I got sober again in 2014, September 7th, it was really then I was open up to the other two parts of the disease. First, I was just addressing the physical part, but then the mental part and also the spiritual part. Is that Did that happen to you as well when you were like white knuckling it? Were you only open to like the physical allergy and you weren't open to the mental and the spiritual component of it? Right, absolutely. And I was really sick. And even the first, I would say the first six months of my sobriety when I was trying to treat it with a 12-step program, I was doing steps. I was still lacking a spirituality. I didn't have a connection to a higher power. And over time, that slowly started to develop. It was not instant for me, and it's taken a lot of work to achieve some semblance of spirituality. I didn't grow up religious, so it was a stretch for me to believe in a higher power. So can you say today you have a constant contact maybe with your higher power? Constant contact would be for me like perfection. And so no, I don't. I do my best to maintain contact as much as possible. But, you know, I'm a human being and I flip back into my old way of thinking quite easily. Mm-hmm. So I have to uh, I have to really work on it. Maintaining it is a lot of work. Prayer gotcha. is hard. I mean, it it takes focus, and you have to get out of that self pitying thing that I think that we do as alcoholics. Sure, um, and I, I know you're yeah. already explaining some of these, but can you give us listeners, including myself, can you give us some tips on how to stay not stay in constant contact, but how to get in touch with this higher power? Well, I think that it's different for everyone, but for me, there's a few different things that are really imperative. I have to have relationships with other alcoholics, and that means I have a sponsor who sort of helps me clear out my messy thinking sometimes. That relationship helps me to have a relationship with my higher power. In addition to that, I pray. I try to meditate. It's really difficult because I have two little boys, so I don't always have quiet time. But I try to get quiet as much as possible. And when I have free time away from them, I like to hike in the woods, hike up mountains, and it really centers me. I feel so connected to the universe when I can get outside and move. Autumn, this is something that I've been working with lately is are called conduits. Electricity flows through conduits, copper, through metal, through, you know, through water. And I have learned that my HP, thank you, Omar, for that HP baby, my higher power flows through these conduits, just like you mentioned. I also have a sponsor and I have found my higher power flows through my sponsor. My higher power flows through the group of drunks, the other alcoholics that I go have coffee with. My higher power flows through the wind as a conduit through those pine trees and the forest. So it's really cool that you've mentioned that. Would you, do you agree with that, that it flows through pretty much anything that you wish to be open to? Right, absolutely. That sums up my understanding of God. And I use that word hesitantly because I struggled with it for so mm-hmm. long. But yeah, I think that there's this energy and there's this connection that we share. 
And that's what my higher power looks like. Man, Autumn, so walk me through it. What was it like when you got sober, your first 24 hours, first 72 hours? What was it like the first month and the first year? Well, the first 24 hours, it was pretty terrible, I would say. I was just filled with so much shame, and I really hated myself. And I think that that continued for a long period of time. But when I started working a program and I started to open my ears and really listen to what other people had been through, I slowly started to gain hope. And I think that, you know, each week that went by, the hope grew and grew. And working 12 steps for me was also really important because I was able to share my dark secrets with someone. And after I did that, I got a hug from that person. And she <laughs> told me she'd, she'd been through some of the same stuff. And then I slowly started to be able to repair relationships I had damaged. And through that process, I really started to gain some of my self-esteem back and some of my self-respect back. And that was really huge for me because I think living in the shame is what keeps us trapped in active alcoholism. Autumn, I heard a little bit about your story a little while ago, and you mentioned nutrition and diet. Kind of changing up your eating habits has been important to you in your recovery. Can you comment a little bit more about that? Right. It's really important. I mean, the first year of sobriety, I didn't worry about it too much because I was I was just trying to get through you know, through each day a little bit and not be obsessed with alcohol anymore. So that was my focus. But I would say the past year and a half, I've radically changed the way I take care of my body. And actually later this week, I'm running my first 10K, which is something I couldn't even run a mile three years ago. No way. That's awesome. So yeah, I'm pretty excited. It's here in Bozeman, Montana. It's the Huffing for stuffing. It's the Thanksgiving. Yeah. There we go. So (laughs) I'm really excited about it. But part of, you know, trying to become an athlete is is taking care of myself nutritionally. And I don't eat fast food anymore. I don't eat processed foods. I eat a lot of vegetables. And it's making a big difference in my life. And hopefully I can model some good behavior for my boys. What a concept. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got to comment on the nutrition component of it too. I am also in a 12-step program, AA, and I've got a sponsor and it's great. But I, in the rooms, I see these people, they're coming in with monster energy drinks, like bags of, of Del Taco and Taco Bell and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But for me, my main focus of dealing with the diet and nutrition component, it's not for vanity reasons. It does help the physical component a little bit, but like a smoothie with juice and kale and stuff like that, that 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 addresses the mental component for me. I feel so much better mentally. Do you, do you experience the same part? Oh, definitely. I have, I drink a green smoothie every morning and it really changes my attitude. I feel so much better about life when I eat well. I think another thing is like, I, I stopped smoking a few years ago and that's a big thing. I see people in the rooms they leave meetings to go smoke. They can't even go an hour without smoking a cigarette. And it's not from a judging, like I'm not trying to judge them because I've been there. But I think everything we put in our body affects us mentally, spiritually. It's a huge part of how healthy we are. And I definitely agree with what you're saying. It can make sobriety recovery a lot better. 
Yeah, it just makes it easier. Sometimes the deck is stacked enough in our sobriety. You don't need to add gummy bears, you know, Sour Patch Kids on the top of that deck. And Autumn, let me tell you about my breakfast this morning about 45 minutes ago. It was steamed broccoli, cauliflower, and steamed collard greens. And it was delicious, though. That was a thing. I don't look at it like, oh, man, recovery sucks. I got to I gotta eat this crap. Like, it was freaking delicious with salt and pepper, oil and vinegar. And, you know, I used to think about steamed vegetables as only for dinner time, but no, it's a breakfast thing. But you sort of have to change your taste buds. There, you go through a little bit of time where that stuff doesn't taste good at first. You're like, totally why am agree. I eating this? But then uh, y- your body starts to realize that it's good for you and you enjoy it after a while. Yeah. No, autumn. And don't get me wrong. Sometimes I still, I like candy bars. I'm, I, <laughs> What's your favorite candy I enjoyed bar? chocolate. What's your favorite candy um, bar? I think probably I like Twix. It's, you know, everything in moderation. I, I exercise in moderation. I eat healthy food in moderation. And sometimes I have junk food. Let me ask this question. Are, do you Twixaholic? Like, do you eat Twix like you're drinking alcohol alcoholically at times? Have you ever done Not that? Not anymore. But the first, again, the first six months of recovery, I just did whatever I could to get by. And that was my candy bar addiction phase. Mm-hmm. And I ate a lot of them. And I haven't given it up completely. And I don't know if I ever need to. But, you know, I definitely focus a little more on having nutritious foods rather than, you know, just trying not to drink. Because for me, the obsession to drink has been lifted, and I don't have to focus on that anymore. Yeah, and I've got to watch out for those damn Reese's Pieces, Autumn. I'll have like 300 of them in a night, in an evening, <laughs> and I'll buy like the small size. It's You know, my mind justifies it too. It's like, I'm, I'm only going to have the small size, and I'll drive back home, and then before I get home, I'm out of the small size, and guess who's doing a U-turn on the way back, getting the family size, and that's... These are small things that I have to worry about in recovery because it's those, right. you know, the sugar addictions. It's like, well, you know, I'm not drinking, but 7,000 calories in Reese's Pieces, they do come in a lot of different formats, you know, like the cups, the pieces. So they do mm-hmm. a great job with marketing, but I got to watch out for that, Autumn. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So Autumn, let's talk about some cool stuff in recovery because I'm a firm believer that recovery is awesome. So you're a psychology student now. Talk to me about some mm-hmm. other really cool things that's going on in your life right now. Well, I, I'm really busy because I have two little boys. They're very young, three and almost two. And so that keeps me really busy. But I don't know. I feel like I have endless possibilities in recovery. I, I sort of felt like completely hopeless when I first started this journey. And now I feel like I could do anything. I mean, I'm trying, I'll, I'll keep my ego in check. Maybe not anything, but I can accomplish a lot. <laughs> I just wrote that down. I'm not even joking. And now I feel like I can do anything. It's amazing you said that. Don't don't take that back because I feel the same way, Autumn. That's amazing. Sorry to interrupt you. Keep going. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm learning that I have interests that I sort of numbed out when I was drinking and using drugs. I just didn't do anything. I partied and you know I drank at home and watched TV and now I don't even turn the TV on I read and I I get outside and explore and it's just you know I'm so much happier what's your favorite hike a few weeks ago before the weather turned I hiked up to Emerald Lake by myself and that was a pretty cool experience because I hardly ever get that much quiet time 
I did it really super early in the morning. And so when I got up to the lake, there was no one up there except for two mountain bikers mm-hmm. and me. And it was just totally still and beautiful. And it made me so grateful that I'm able to do things like that now. That is so cool. That is so awesome. Autumn, I read an article that was done about you. About So you're in college right now, and you are basically the face of students in recovery. Tell me about that article. And, <laughs> and, and girl, I got to give you kudos for basically coming out of the closet like that, because I did it with this podcast, and it's not easy. Mm. No, it's a little scary. And it's, if it was just me, I would not have hesitated one bit. But because I have two sons. I was a little nervous about how maybe their preschool teachers would respond and other mothers and, you know, parents that know them just from the library or whatnot. But I really feel it's important to talk about this disease because it is a disease and we don't choose to have it. And people, you know, they keep it closeted because there's so much shame associated with it and it's just not right because it you know people remain sick and how have some of those people reacted just out of curiosity i think in general it's been good i'm a sensitive person and so i sometimes take comments i maybe take it the wrong way when someone says something to me but i think for the most part it's been a good reaction and i've gotten some you know some people have looked me up on facebook and sent me Messages saying that that it really reached them, and for me, that's what makes it worth it. Totally. I read that article and was like, this girl has got to get on the podcast because she's doing some awesome things in her community. So congratulations, Autumn. I'm I'm really proud of you. Well, thank you. I'm really proud of you. Thank you very much. Because that takes guts and courage, and you got it. Now, Autumn, talk to me about your recovery portfolio. Now, what that means is what are you currently doing to stay sober? Well, for me, again, a 12-step program is it's vital. I have to be working on that. And I go to meetings. I, go, I try to get between two and four meetings a week. I talk to a sponsor. I have these close, close friendships with other people in recovery that they help keep me on track. And without these people, I would not be able to do it. I can't do this alone. Mm-hmm. I need help. And that's just how it it is for me. And then, you know, we had talked about exercise and nutrition. Those are incredibly important. And in addition to that, you know, trying to maintain a contact with my higher power. And for me, what that looks like is praying and doing readings that help help me clear out the mess in my mind. I do try and meditate, but I'm pretty bad at it. <laughs> It doesn't always it doesn't always help. Sometimes I feel like it makes me a little crazier because I can't quiet my monkey mind. Adam, I I got a an app called Headspace and there's 10 10 minute sessions and I was doing my meditating this morning around like 6:10 to to 6:15 and it ended and I didn't even realize it ended. Like I looked out at my phone and I realized I was thinking about like fantasy football, I was thinking about shoes, <laughs> I was thinking about the weather. And the ad, like the, the the meditation program was over, and I my mind was so far on Pluto that I hadn't even realized that. And so meditation is freaking hard, is what I'm getting at right now. Right, I think it takes practice, and if we can continue to practice, maybe we'll get better and better at it. Or maybe maybe not. Maybe it's just 
testing yeah. our patience. <laughs> I never thought I could quit drinking, and I don't think I can become good at meditating. And I've done one of them. I'm gonna get the other one. I'm gonna figure out this meditative good. piece. So, yeah. And Otto, we have reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? I suppose. Here we go. Let's hear number one. What is your worst memory from drinking? Either the when I woke up um, covered in my own vomit, or there was a point in time when I was so miserable that I I was driving around drunk, which is so dangerous. But my thought was that I wanted to drive off of the cliff, and that was just misery. Hmm. Next question, Autumn. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Continue doing what I'm doing. I, it's really working for me. And I want to reach out and help people more. My plan is to get a master's in social work. And I don't know if that will be in working with addictions or not, but I want to help people. And Autumn, what is your favorite resource in recovery? This could be a 12-step program, a book? Um, I would say, yeah, the 12 steps and a program and fellowship. There we go. In regards to sobriety, Autumn, what's the best advice you have ever received? Uh, it's something I think that people hear quite often, and that's one day at a time. But for me, what that really is about is one moment at a time. We can handle anything one moment at a time. Hmm, I like that. And Autumn, what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or in recovery? Maybe just to love yourself, because I think that we're so hard on ourselves. So give yourself a little break. Love yourself. Keep trying. Autumn, the podcast that came out no more than two hours ago is titled that, Self-Loathing in Recovery, How We Continue to Kick the Shit Out of Ourselves Even in Recovery. And I'm really glad you mentioned that because it's a major focal point for me. Of course, like in the morning time, you know, when I was drinking, I was like, oh, God, I did it again. You got to be effing kidding me. But even in recovery, it's still like, God, you had 927 Reese's Pieces last night. Like, what the? F and so you just got to be okay with it and love yourself. So mm -hmm. I love how you said that, Autumn. Now let's close it out here with your own personalized, you might be an alcoholic if line. Autumn, what you got? Uh, you might be an alcoholic if you keep vodka in your dirty clothes hamper. Oh, I love it. I love it. Love it. It's almost like a dirty martini in the dirty clothes. Hamper. <laughs> I love it. Autumn, thanks for helping me stay sober today. Thank you so much for joining us. You might be an alcoholic if this first one comes from Steve in Southern California. You might be an alcoholic if you coach a Pac-12 football game shit faced. This one's from Tommy way out in Norway. You might be an alcoholic if you come to mid blackout and you're being arrested. This next one's from Richard in Indiana. You might be an alcoholic if you leave a message at work while blacked out, saying you've been up all night throwing up and you won't be into work the next morning. Only when you wake up, you forgot you called in sick. And the first thing the boss says to you when you show up is, Richard, I thought you were vomiting all night and you weren't going to come in this morning. And this one's from Shelly. You might be an alcoholic if you tell your family on Christmas Day that this is going to be your last big hurrah day of drinking before quitting. And then every day until New Year's Eve, you sneak beer and wine and pour it into a large mug just to hide it. This next one's from Rachel. You might be an alcoholic if you've gone two weeks sober, and then you decide to have wine at lunch while out with your sober husband. And the minute you decide to have that wine, you are instantly irritated that the server is taking too long to come back with that glass of wine. You're ready to order food, but at this moment, you can't hear anything that your husband is saying. 
and then you drink your glass in under 10 minutes. And while your husband goes to the restroom, you order that second glass of wine. This next one's from Carrie. You might be an alcoholic if, after consuming your box of wine, you tear open the cardboard, cut the end of the plastic sleeve, and get all the remaining drops of the alcohol out. Thank you for those you might be an alcoholic ifs. If you have one, email them to info at recoveryelevator.com. In the subject line, just put you might be an alcoholic if. Thank you, Megan, for compiling these on a weekly basis. I know that takes time. Thank you, Megan. If you want to see a detailed list of today's You Might Be an Alcoholics, go to recoveryelevator.com, episode 44. In the show notes, you can see these. Recovery Elevator. As I had mentioned, we are excited about our very first meetup in Seattle, Washington on February 27th. The exact location is not decided yet. However, it's going to be in the downtown Seattle area. You can go to recoveryelevator.com and RSVP through the website there. There will be more details to come. This is our very first meetup. This is going to be progress. It's not going to be perfection at all. You're welcome to fly there. You're welcome to drive there. Let us know if you're coming. I cannot wait to do this. It's scary. It is. But it's going to be a lot of fun. I personally cannot wait to add a lot more alcoholics to my network in recovery. Just put that name in my Rolodex of my recovery portfolio. And if you are not connected with Recovery Elevator, do yourself a favor. Like the Recovery Elevator Facebook page. More importantly, join the Recovery Elevator Accountability Group. In the Facebook search bar, you can search Recovery Elevator Accountability Group. You will need to request to join and we'll approve it. What's happening in that group is simply amazing. I'm on there daily and this has been a vital resource that I didn't really see coming to help me stay sober. There are videos, there is so much laughter, there are smiles. When we have bad days, we reach out for help. We ask for help. In fact, asking for help will be a future podcast episode in the next two or three podcasts. Asking for help is so hard. In fact, extremely hard to do. What I see daily in this Facebook group is people asking for help and people being honest. If you relapse, who cares? Let us know. You just got to get back up and start over. Speaking of, here's a little update. Do you guys remember that Robert guy who's got that Southern accent? He's been on the podcast twice, actually three times. He was interviewed once, interviewed again, and then we did a checkup with him. This guy, Robert, I think now he's over 50 days of sobriety. So Robert, if you're listening, nice job, my man. As I mentioned before, this is me holding myself accountable. Robert, not if, but when you get one year of sobriety, I'm flying out. We're going to meet in person. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to take me to that bridge where you crashed your truck into it, and we're going to have a good laugh. Because I've seen your videos, Robert. You're a funny guy, and humor and comedy and smiles, it has to be part of recovery. We've got our ass kicked enough. There was plenty of gloom and doom in my life. But one cool thing that's happened in recovery for myself, Paul Churchill, is that the smiles have returned and they haven't stopped. The wave of smiles, they keep on coming. I'm laughing, I'm joking with random strangers, stuff that used to never ever happen when I was drinking. So recovery elevator, you took the elevator down, you gotta take the stairs back up. You can do this.